Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today we're discussing the history and future of LGBTQ plus rights under human rights law. And who better to discuss that than Jonathan Cooper, OBE. He's a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, where I am also based, and he specialises in human rights and public law. He devised human rights training programmes used around the world by judges, lawyers and public authorities, including the UK's Foreign Office and MOJ. He edits several human rights texts, including the, the Holsbury's Laws, Rights and Freedoms edition, and the leading law journal in this area, the European Human Rights Law Review. He was awarded his OBE for services to human rights. The podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open for next year's course. To learn more, please visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law. We're keen for people to get in touch with the podcast with suggestions or comments. Adam at betterhumanpodcast.com is the email address. Behumanpodcast, that's with the letter B, is our Twitter account. And if you find the podcast interesting and useful, please consider contributing $3 a month through our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. So I thought that a good place to start would be the very basics. I mean, starting with when people talk about LGBT. LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus. What, what are we talking about when we when we talk about those acronyms? You're basically talking about the lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans communities or individuals. Q is for queer, but I think legally it's probably more accurate just to limit ourselves to LGBT. We'll, we'll say LGBT for the purpose of this discussion. Correct. Where are we looking in in the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act? What are the key articles that protect LGBT people? Well, historically, the key article has been Article Eight and the right to private life. I, you have a right to an identity um, within your private life, and that identity includes a lesbian and gay or a transgendered identity. Um, so it's principally Article 8, the right to respect for private life. Um, there's the prohibition on discrimination um, in Article 14. So you can't be discriminated against on the basis that you are LGBT. Uh, but, but it doesn't say that in, it doesn't, in Article 14, no, does but it? it, it Article 14, the, the, pro, the prohibition on discrimination, includes that kind of wide-ranging other status. Um, and LGBT rights have been firmly... Um, ensconced within other status and you'd really have to have pretty weighty reasons now to justify discriminating against a, a gay or a lesbian person or a bisexual transgender person and and we can if we compare that to the eu charter that's that's slightly different isn't it yeah the eu charter is different i mean it comes from a very different place the eu charter um was drafted to provide the catalogue of rights that all Europeans um, should be able to expect from the European Union. And in the EU Charter, they specifically and expressly refer to the prohibition on discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. Uh, They don't refer to trans people or transgendered people. Um, And in a way, that doesn't matter because the European Court of Justice or the Court of Justice of the European Union has, in a case back in the mid '90s, uh, clearly identified discrimination on the basis of your trans status or your trans identity as being sex discrimination. So, sex discrimination covers transgender discrimination too. So, there wasn't really a need to expressly identify trans people um, in the prohibition on discrimination in the way that they did identify sexual orientation. Although, arguably, it would have been a better thing to have done that, but they didn't. And I can see the kind of legal logic for why they didn't need to, because it it was already clearly established in the mid-90s that the definition of sex includes transgendered people. And and is there any 
operative difference between the European Convention and the Charter in terms of, I mean, as we sit here recording this, the Charter still applies in the UK. But if the Charter stops applying in the UK, will that reduce or be neutral in terms of protections for LGBT people? Oh, inevitably, losing the Charter will have a significant impact on gay and lesbian people and bisexual people in terms of the protections that they have available to them. You know, it is counterintuitive to remove the only provision in international law that expressly and specifically prohibits discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation, which is contained in the EU Charter. As I've already said, Article 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights, and therefore within the Human Rights Act, contains this right to non-discrimination, and it has been interpreted to include sexual orientation, and you would need very weighty reasons to justify discriminating against um, LGBT people. But it doesn't expressly mention them, whereas the Charter does. The Charter also has a right to dignity. Um, it has a freestanding right to equality. Um, you know, there are many, many rights that are directly relevant to LGBT people, um, enabling their free movement across the European Union that will be a, a significant loss if or when we leave the European Union and the result of that means that the EU Charter ceases to be part of UK law. Coming back to the Human Rights Act, so Article 8 and 14 are the most used, but um, what other articles might come into play when you're looking at the full range of LGBT cases? Well, really, and actually interestingly, the law is catching up in this, in this, in this respect, Really, the, the right that should be most relevant to LGBT people is, of course, the freedom of expression right. I mean, okay, everyone's very grateful for access to a little bit of private space um, in which you can be LGBT, but the real point is about expressing yourself as LGBT, being ex able to express your, your identity as a gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual person. Increasingly, we're seeing the law develop in that way. But historically, that hasn't been developed particularly. But if you're looking at more international cases, there's re been recent cases from India, for example, where they firmly located LGBT rights in freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, and we are seeing the European Court of Human Rights do that. And inevitably, if or when you know, relevant cases come before our courts, they too will, will, will bite on that and... and develop that area. So free speech is important, um, not only in terms of expressing your identity as a person, but also being able to express gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual um, issues. So in relation to the, that free speech or free expression aspect, which I think is really interesting, it, bring, it brought to my mind Article 9, the, the, the right to um, freedom of religion, which has those two elements to it, which is you have a right to freedom of conscience so that, that's really quite a sort of identity base you know to, to, uh, the right to believe anything to believe anything you want and that's an unqualified right and then you have the right separately to manifest your belief and i thought that that's quite an interesting thought in terms of the uh, uh, your sexual orientation and how expressing it isn't really you don't really see that in the case law as much no, no, you don't. And that's why it's developing. And I mean, interestingly, back in the day, and inevitably we'll come back to this case repeatedly, um, in the, the Gays and the Armed Forces case, part of the arguments that were run there, and part, certainly in relation to two of the applicants, was a free speech argument that they, that they had the right to express their identity um, within the Armed Forces. And the European Court of Human Rights didn't disagree with those arguments, but they said they didn't add anything to the privacy arguments. So they didn't they didn't develop them, but interestingly, of course, with the free speech arguments, i.e., the idea that you can express yourself as your identity, express yourself as a gay man or a lesbian or as a trans person, a bisexual person, there is the other side to that, which is, of course, people can use their freedom of expression to say anti-gay things, or how far can people go in using their free speech rights to to express their hostility to, to LGBT identity. Uh, and so that's an issue. And interestingly, you raise religion and the argument that's principally used against LGBT people, so it is a, direct, a right that is of direct relevance, 
is faith and religion and therefore how how to what extent can people use their free their freedom of religion and their right to manifest their religion to express um hostility towards lgbt people or to take away the rights of lgbt people or to deny lgbt people and we'll come back to those religious that 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 balancing question about religious free expression if I put it like that I'm just finishing off this shopping list of the key rights. Um, I suppose you also have Article 3, right not to be inhumanly treated or, or, or tortured. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, interesting issues arise there. I mean, there have been, there've been cases at the European Court of Human Rights which have looked at the way in which gay men and trans people have been treated in prison, and they've identified that they're being treated in such a way because they're LGBT, and therefore that amounts to inhuman degrading treatment. Um, it is a big issue in the context of asylum. Most notably, can you return somebody to a jurisdiction that will persecute them because they're LGBT, um, You know where they will be criminalised, where they will face mob justice, non-state actors, as we say in the trade, uh, but also the state, the police being prosecuted. And obviously, there are those jurisdictions that still have the death penalty. So, um, you know, can you return a openly gay person to Nigeria, uh, where should they be returned to Nigeria, they will face all kinds of penalties, then the answer to that is no, you can't. So the prohibition on torture in Article 3 is of direct relevance to LGBT people. And if we were going back to the Charter, the EU Charter, we would, of course, add that wonderful right that starts off the Charter rights, the right to dignity, and therefore you cannot undermine people's dignity and their dignity as an LGBT person. And when you were speaking about this idea of expressing your identity, it, it brought to mind um, for me um, the the Supreme Court case um, about not sending someone back where they will have to hide their LGBT identity. And I think there was that. Um, f- I, I don't want to misquote it, but that uh, the um, the thing the the paragraph about Kylie in high heels or and cocktails. Yeah, or, yeah, or, or yeah. it was very <laughs> charming, very very charming. Yeah, got a bit of got a bit of criticism, but it was actually very lovely the way in which the the court the, the Supreme Court sought to sort of identify with the issues that actually if some lovely gay young man wants to hang around with his girlfriends sipping cocktails, I believe it was, and listening to Kylie, uh, then um, he he must be entitled to do that. My memory is, as a little anecdote of court cases, that when, um, when that particular part of the judgment was being drafted the original version was was barbara streisand um, <laughs> but of course uh, we'd moved on from you know the great gay icon that is barbara to uh to, to, to kylie by by whatever it was um the early 21st century i've got i've got the quote here it's uh, is lord roger yeah, yeah um what is protected is the applicant's right to live freely and openly as a gay man to illustrate the point with trivial stereotypical examples from british society just as a male male heterosexuals are free to enjoy themselves playing rugby, drinking beer, and talking about girls, well, that's I've, I've failed, or, yeah, failed already um, with their mates. So, so male homosexuals are free to enjoy themselves going to Kylie concerts, drinking exotically coloured cocktails, and talking about boys with straight female mates. I mean, it. it, it a little bit of stereotyping there, although I do have to confess I did once go to a Kylie concert and I was rather bored. But And it was all thanks to our colleague Kate Beatty, who for some reason gave me a ticket. Yeah. And so uh, that's why I ended up there. Um, well, well, anyway, I mean, that, that, that Lord, Lord Roger goes down in history on, on that one. Uh, but, but the reality is, uh, I mean, around the world, people picked up on that. And obviously, they were the critics of it. But most people in the LGBT world were so touched and charmed that he'd reached out in that way and and had sought to empathize in the way that he did so uh, um, all credit to him and, and I suppose he was trying to explain to a wider audience what what it would look like for a stereotypical gay person to express themselves in a society where they can't so all of those things that that and it would there's a sort of absurdity that he's highlighting yeah. that simply by doing things that are stereotypically um, 
gay, one one will bring yourself to the attention of the authorities. Absolutely, who, are, you, who are bigots, and, and they will persecute, you. and they will persecute, and you, you will be, uh, you know, you will be detained. You, you know, obviously, you may be able to pay your way out of it, but you will be subjected to a very miserable time, and it may be a hundred times worse, and you may end up, um, you know, being prosecuted. But the harassment of the state. And the fact that the state condones, if not encourages, others, private citizens, to 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 engage in that harassment as well, um, he he captured something very neatly there. Um, uh, that, that actually the the misery that that the you know millions and millions and millions of it's probably now just about half the world uh, of gay men, lesbians, trans people, bisexual people live under at the moment. You know, they, they cannot express themselves. If they do, at the very least, they'll be punched. You know, otherwise they'll be arrested. And um, for people who want to read that judgment, it's, it was H.J. Iran. Yeah. So, so for people who want to read that judgment, it's called H.J. H. J. Iran, and you can find it on the Supreme Court website. So we've nearly finished our roadmap of the Human Rights Act. I think the the only other right that I wanted to talk about was Article 12, the right to marry, um, which seems to be a pretty weak right in terms of, well, gay marriage. Never really helped very much in forcing gay marriage. Well, not today anyway. No, and has been incredibly important in the context of trans people and the right to marry, um, which is fantastic. But in relation to same-sex marriages, it's been—it's—it's it's not really been of much use, particularly because of the, of its wording. And again, if you compare that to its its equivalent in the EU Charter, the EU Charter is is very much gender neutral, um, and therefore does permit equal marriage between people of the same sex. But I mean, it, it, you know, things overtook the, um, the the Human Rights Act. I mean, you know, the you know, Cameron pushing through the equal marriage legislation really did mean that that he sort of anticipated all of that issue, and um, uh, and therefore the law was 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 sorted out by Parliament, not through, not by the courts. No, and 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 I think that the later, the most recent case that I saw effectively said it's up it's, there's no there's no consensus this is the european court so there's no consensus among states about whether they'll allow or not allow gay marriage so we're not going to dictate well what the european court has said is that you cannot discriminate to all intents and purposes what the european court has said is you cannot discriminate against um lgbt couples um but and therefore some form of civil partnership must be made available but you don't, you know, marriage at the moment is not required by the European Convention on Human Rights, but a, a form of civil partnership is. So, you know, you've got cases, that, you know, bubbling away in the European court system against Russia and other jurisdictions where there is no civil partnership, no recognition of, of relationships. So inevitably, Russia will be found to have violated the European Convention, because it doesn't provide for civil partnerships. So we've done our roadmap of the Human Rights Act. I think so. And I think I think that's all of them. I want to go backwards now um, to before the Human Rights Act and talk about, I mean, if, if we'd st- we start in 1967, which was the first step to full legalisation of um, homosexuality. So that's the Sexual Offences Act, which legalized homosexual acts in private between consenting males over 21, with which compared to the age of consent for opposite sex couples, which was 16, um, was still quite a disparity. But that's that's the sort of first stage. In the years between then and 2000, when the Human Rights Act came into force, um, what kind of remedies would somebody have if they were being discriminated against because of their LGBT status? Uh, the reality is there were no laws that protected LGBT people, um, none at all. I mean, the only laws that there were that were directly relevant to LGBT people were used against LGBT people. So there were um, 
you, there was nothing to protect you from being discriminated against under any circumstances. And obviously the criminal law was there and still highly applicable. Thousands and thousands and thousands of gay men were, were, were prosecuted because they couldn't kind of fit within those constraints of the 67 Act. Obviously the 67 Act was a good thing. Nobody's suggesting it wasn't. But it was only partial decriminalization. You know, if, I mean, and there were cases, the cases that went to Strasbourg um, that lost, where one of the parties was 22 and the other one was 20 or something, and therefore they were convicted or he was convicted. They obviously both committed a criminal offence. Um, so, you know, it, it was a bit of an absurdity, the 67 Act. It was highly heteronormative. You know, the idea that these people, these sort of working-class gay kids would have a private space in which to go and have some sort of sexual liaison was absurd. Of course, they, they didn't, or these, you know, these men who were, were married. And so for many, many gay men um, throughout the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was virtually impossible for them to comply with it. So thousands and thousands of people were convicted of courts on these consensual sexual acts. Um, but you were unable to serve in the armed forces if you were um, LGBT. Many Tens of thousands of people were dismissed because of that. Uh, four people in the mid-90s had the temerity to challenge their dismissal, and they brought a judicial review. It's Lustig Preen is the main case in the English courts, it's actually um, Smith and Grady in the Strasbourg court um, is, is probably the, the slightly lead, the, the leading case there. But um, Lustig Preen is the case if you want to look it up. Um, they challenged the fact they've been dismissed under traditional judicial review grounds. And the High Court and then the Court of Appeal agreed with them. Lord Bingham, then Master of the Rolls, giving the lead judgment for the Court of Appeal, basically not being able to establish that it was so unreasonable that nobody else in their right minds would have dismissed them. So it was the case more than any other that proved the, the weakness of judicial review in the absence of human rights. I mean, from my memory of, of, of that judgment, because the, the ban was in statutes, there was simply nothing that the judges could do about it, even if they found it to be abhorrent and irrational. Well, I mean, I, Bingham's point was, even though it, it it just couldn't pass the threshold of, I mean, back in those days, we had um, heightened, what was it called? Heightened irrationality? What was it called? They had, or super irrationality. And they, they, they were always trying, the courts were doing their best to get the highest level of scrutiny they could in relation to certain circumstances. And even under those circumstances, because of the statutory permission that was there for the blanket ban, um, there was nothing they felt they could do. And you could feel his anguish when he said, you know, if these people have a remedy, you know, uh, their remedy isn't for this court you know, for them to find out if they've got a remedy, it's at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So, um, and so off they went to the European Court. And there was a very clear finding of a violation of of Article 8, and that the whole process was was disproportionate. It was a disproportionate interference with their, their privacy rights. Um, and most interestingly, the court also found that judicial review under these circumstances and the, 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 the quality of judicial review under these circumstances um, was insufficient to provide an effective remedy. So it was it was the kind of final nail in the coffin of um, the pre-Human Rights Act situation where the European Court was basically saying the English, the English courts aren't equipped to deal with these difficult human rights cases and therefore they need... Uh, they need additional additional mechanisms to assist them, but simply re- relying on some woolly notion of, of, of Wensbury irrationality is insufficient to uphold human rights. And, and just to go back into the facts of those cases, they weren't, it wasn't just a challenge to the sort of the, the ban itself. It was the treatment that they, that these four individuals had received which I found really quite shocking when when you read it now. You know, the the when they were exposed as 
being gay. They yeah. were they were subjected to oh, humiliating, yeah. shamed, invasive interviews. I don't know if you remember one of them, but 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 Beckett was a kid. He was nineteen, I think, at the time, and he'd um, and this really, really, really got under Lord Bigham's skin. You could feel how angry he was about it. He'd um, told his vicar whatever spiritual person they have in the armed forces that he thought he was gay and um that was used against him and the vicar had shopped him yeah. in yeah yeah um, and that really you know that really did offend i mean obviously Bingham was a man of tremendous moral standing and that really did offend and upset him and you know and obviously now if we were looking at that we would look at the whole way in which those people were interrogated all of them uh, but a particularly, you know, a, a, a teenager as John Beckett still was, um, that we would we would describe that as inhuman and degrading treatment. And you were involved in those cases. Uh, I was, yeah, I was yeah. the most junior counsel. Yeah, in, in, in all four or in, uh, in, in some of them. Smith and um, Smith and Grady. Smith and Grady. Which, and, and remind Smith us Grady. which ones Je- was Je- Smith and Grady. Uh, Jeanette was uh, is uh, an amazing. I'm sure she's still practicing uh, nurse, and she was a nurse working for the in the armed forces. Uh, Graham Grady was a, to all intents and purposes, a secretary uh, working um, in the navy. And um, they were, I mean, it was quite interesting just to see the four individuals involved and how it affected them. They were all affected, you know, they were all devastated, but they were affected differently and it destroyed their lives. I mean, you know, uh, is it inappropriate to say this, but, you know, Duncan Lustig Preen should be a great admiral um, of the British fleet. And he was kicked out because he's gay. It's absurd. Yeah. I mean, they, they all, all they had all, they all excellent records in there. I remember that from the, impeccable. From the and, judgments. You know, and, and you can Im- imagine there you are, you know, I mean, what, I mean, it makes no difference at all to any of them. But, you know, the fact that your nurse is a lesbian, what possible difference does that make to anything? And it, the, just the absurdity of it all. And, you know, it, it caused real, real harm and anguish to those people. And, you know, well, they were um, uh, compensated and they got, you know, they got you know, decent compensation. But, it, you know, and Strasbourg required that or insisted upon it. Um, but it doesn't make up for what it did to them. Well, it, was, it took years to get to that point. Yeah. From, from oh, the when... whole thing took years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, no, they're they're genuine. Uh, well, most people that bring human rights cases are, are are heroes, but those four are real heroes. And 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 when you look back on that, what what sticks in your mind as the sort of defining memory of it? Um, I remember uh, Jeanette Smith's girlfriend's anguish on her face. Actually, it makes me quite, quite emotional to think about it when they realised they'd lost in the High Court. Like she couldn't believe it. She couldn't believe. Not only you can, I can, I can still see her face. She it sort of felt like she was sort of running through the royal courts of justice. But she was. It was really, really searing um, to see how distressed they were. I mean, to me, I mean, obviously, you know, all credit for this case goes to David Panic. But you know, it was obvious that the state of English law uh, that they that they would they would lose, and I'm sure. That David knew that, but that they would end up and win in Strasbourg. Um, so, um, but we were also running a, an equality argument, an equal treatment directive argument, trying to argue that the definition of his sex um, includes sexual orientation for the purposes of sex discrimination law, which we might want to come back to in a, in a month or so, Adam, because the US Supreme Court is looking at the same issue. Um, yeah, there's just been a big case at the US Supreme Court looking at that question. And it must be right that sex falls within, the, uh, sexual orientation falls within the definition of sex. But um, let's, see, let's see what the US Supreme Court has to say. Because if the US Supreme Court upholds that principle, it'll, uh, it'll change everything. And interestingly, you know, not that this is a David Panic fan club, but uh, you know, I'm the secretary and you can be the treasurer. I'm happy to, to join, yeah, and I'm happy to be the uh, But, you know, David wrote uh, uh, a monograph about that, I think, in the 70s. Uh, 
um, you know, I mean, it is. We we should acknowledge those great straight heroes: David Panic, uh, Peter Duffy, Peter Duffy in particular, and I think David would agree. Uh, an amazing barrister um, who really did forge LGBT litigation and law in this country. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Let's stay on LGBT law and litigation because the so you have the 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 Smith and and Lusted Preen and and the other two case that and you get to Strasbourg um, just before the Human Rights Act and Strasbourg say your system is just not fit for purpose it's not it's not sufficient judicial review is is hasn't got enough teeth to be able to bite into these issues. Then you have the new Labour government that brings in the Human Rights Act. 1998 comes into force in 2000. What changes for LGBT rights following that and how does it impact? I mean, what one initial question I had was whether the change in the age of consent in 2000 was connected to the coming into force of the Human Rights Act. Well, ultimately, the age of consent had to be equalised because of a decision at the European then Commission of Human Rights, Sutherland in the UK. Um, there had been a case that was brought by uh, a, a couple of other people, but in 1994, the Criminal Justice Act reduced the age of consent from 21 to 18, and so therefore they sort of fell away. But after that, you still had you in Sutherland's case, and so which, again, Peter Duffy did. I mean, he was a, an absolutely brilliant human rights lawyer and peter won this extraordinary decision which really did give real life to the principle of equality in the prohibition on discrimination in article 14 and therefore it established that you and sutherland and other people under 18 and over 16 were being discriminated against and so uh the uk made a commitment to the council of europe to the european court of human rights that they would um, equalise the age of consent and therefore they had no choice but to do it. Um, But legislation did take over. But, I mean, arguably, I mean, what is the most significant development in LGBT equality um, in the last 30-plus years? Is it um, Dudgeon in the UK, the case against uh, the UK involving Northern Ireland, um, where you were still criminalised if you were if you were gay, that case established that to criminalise people would violate their right to respect for private life, and that was then followed in Norris against Ireland, Modinus and Cyprus. So a clear principle of European human rights law, which then became a clear principle of global international human rights law. So that, so that wasn't just about equalising within a state; it was about the basic the principle that you cannot criminalise homosexual homosexuality. Brilliant point, Adam, if I can say so. The, the approach of Geoffrey Dudgeon's legal team was to try and set it up as a discriminatory issue within the United Kingdom, i.e. you're criminalised in Northern Ireland, but you're not in the rest of England's, well, England, Scotland, England, Scotland and Wales, uh, but you were in Northern Ireland. And then the European Court of Human Rights sort of ran with it. They did what you just did, and they said, um, well, actually... It's just, it, it, this is a fundamental interference with privacy rights, full stop. Uh, and we don't really need to address it in the context of the United Kingdom because we see this as a, as a very, very serious um, interference with the right to respect for private life. And therefore, by doing that back in 1981, uh, they transformed the nature of LGBT rights because for the first time anywhere in the world, LGBT rights were recognised as human rights. And so Jeff Dudgeon's case made that extraordinary leap to where we now are, where we, to all intents and purposes, certainly within this jurisdiction, 
um, have full equality. And it does stem from that. But, but interestingly, when we ask ourselves that question, what's the most significant moment? Was it the gays in the armed forces case? Was it Jeffrey Dudgeon's case? Was it the Sutherland case? Was it um, uh, you know, other cases that have gone through the, 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 the human rights system? I would argue, actually, the most significant development LGBT equality was the Amsterdam treat, treat, Treaty back in 1997, where um, prohibition on discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation was included in that treaty as a fundamental principle of European law. And therefore, once that was established, um, LGBT rights became mainstreamed throughout law. And in the absence of that, would we have, would we be where we are now? I think we'd obviously still have the human rights protection of privacy and all of that, but we wouldn't have that mainstreaming of the prohibition of discrimination across the board. And it is so interesting. I don't want to turn this into something political because obviously the Conservatives have come round and are fully supportive of LGBT equality and non-discrimination. But had the Conservatives won the 1997 election, had John Major won that election, they would have insisted that sexual orientation was taken out of the Amsterdam Treaty. And that's quite remarkable um, that that could have happened. But, you know, the Blair government came in. It was already in the treaty. They didn't put it in the treaty. It was in the treaty. They just gave effect to it. Once you had that, you then, it's not, it's really just a hop, skip and a jump to the Equality Act in 2010 and the, the full recognition of, of that you can't discriminate against LGBT people across the board. So I would argue it's difficult. It's probably a, comb- it, 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 or a combination of the two. Joint first place for the most significant development in LGBT history goes to Geoffrey Dodgen's case and the Amsterdam Treaty in 1997. So should we talk about Guyden and Gordon Mendoza, which is 2004? This is a UK House of Lords case. What, what you were developing, and you'd had it a little bit before as well, where, where there was a sort of recognition that the law was, was insufficient, wasn't doing enough. Um, but then with with the Human Rights Act and privacy rights and family life rights and that that extension of family life rights to LGBT people, that then meant that there was this steady but incremental application of law and the protection of the law to LGBT people. So, you know, housing rights, um, immigration rights, they all sort of developed and, and, and flowed from the Human Rights Act. Talking this through, I, I find it, and, and we'll come on to trans rights in a, in a minute. But I'm thinking, in particular, the Goodwin case, yeah. which sort of opened up um, trans rights ac- across the whole of Europe because it made these sort of principal points about trans rights. It's interesting that quite a number of the the totemic cases have been UK yeah. applications. Do, do you think that's is that accidental, or is it something about the legal community here? Um. Or is it something about uh, the English, I don't think it's more English than British, or maybe it's British, preoccupation with sex and the embarrassment around sex <laughs> that we end up sort of doing our dirty laundry in public? I think that's probably more um, about it. I mean, you know, no other jurisdiction had, had targeted the LGBT community in the way that the British did. Uh, you know, nowhere in the world. You know, um, the UK in the in the... Well, certainly in the fifties, but the UK even in the seventies and eighties makes you know places like Uganda and Nigeria seem like relatively benign jurisdictions. Um, I mean, the UK actively persecuted LGBT people, and so the interesting thing is how little litigation there's been, really, not how much. Um, and, you know, and it raises big, fascinating questions. You know, which I don't know. Uh, you know, I I try to have these discussions with people, but. I haven't done, I haven't got very far so far, but you know, if you look at that level of persecution, you know, it was state policy for mothers to reject their sons. You look at the number of people that were convicted. You look at the number of people that that were beaten up as in part of gay bashing. The number of people that were that were fired. The number of people that were thrown out of their homes. Um, you know, you're talking about thousands and thousands of people in a systematic way. Uh, who were subject to this level of persecution 
why isn't there some sort of inquiry into that? Why isn't the state asking itself, what did we do? To what extent were we complicit in all of this? What are our obligations towards the people that were so badly harmed by it? And it, it, it is interesting in the absence of that, that, um, you know, will we ever really come to terms with the homophobia? You know, I mean, the interesting thing about it is, you know, you know, LGBT people could be as homophobic as everybody else, but but the issue about LGBT hatred was there were odd exceptions, but the overwhelming majority of people thought it was okay to hate puffs and queers. And it is interesting when I talk to um, you know lesbians of my age, and we talk about you know being you know, going through secondary school in the 70s and just the kind of misery, the daily grind and misery that, that there was. Um, and that's just a good day in going to school. And, you know, why has the British state got away with it? I'm kind of curious to know why, you know, David Cameron turns around and gives equal marriage and gives that very beautiful and emotive speech about... You know, the gay kid being able to stand us that little bit taller in the playground today, which is fantastic. I don't, I'm not doubting that. But why do have they got away with it? Why have they got away with Section 28? Why, in the middle of the AIDS crisis, did the government turn on, and it was the government, turn on gay people and tell people that it was okay to, to sort of despise them? Um, it, it it, it's fascinating that there isn't a, a more of a call for accountability of the state. I mean, is are there calls for accountability of the state? Does that does it has anybody suggested a, a public inquiry or? Well, a, I mean, it's interesting. You look at um, well, I have, but, but <laughs> <laughs> no surprises. <laughs> I can, there's a Guardian article I can refer you to, and, and a, I think an independent one as well. But um, but. That aside, um, uh, interestingly, no. I mean, obviously, there's the the issue around pardons and Alan Turing's pardon and the and the set aside scheme, set aside, put aside, set aside scheme, where you can't take into account people's convictions, and they're great, but they are also sort of slightly missing the point. They're a bit technical. As they're well, technical. And they've had very low take-up. And essentially, the reason why they've had very low take-up is that the overwhelming majority of people who have were convicted are excluded from access to them because you can't, um, if, you're, if you were cottaging, if that expression is familiar to people, then those people who were cottaging are excluded. So the Alan Turing could get a pardon because he was arrested for conduct that took place in his home. But John Gielgud, the greatest actor of the world of the, in the 20th century, uh, he's not entitled to a pardon or a, or a set-aside because he was caught cottaging. And people caught cottaging, i.e. having some furtive sexual encounter or aspiring to have some furtive sexual encounter um just aren't eligible for it and the you know the other interesting example is you know epstein you know the beatles manager he was done and he could probably get a pardon i think because he was on his way to go cottaging i don't think he was cottaging so i mean so so the whole thing is just missing the point completely and going back to that kind of PC word of heteronormative, the whole thing is so profoundly and deeply heteronormative, it's sort of missing the point of the culture and the world that was created around the persecution that was, that if you were in any way LGBT, you would, well, certainly gay uh, and bisexual and trans, you would be prosecuted or you could be prosecuted. So, you know, you have to remember that even you know gay people created our own language. I shouldn't really say "ah" because I wasn't part of it, but gay people created their own language of Polari, and uh, because they had to, because if they didn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to communicate with each other about the issues that they wanted to communicate about, i.e., their daily lives. Um, and if they had spoken out in English, they would have been arrested. So. It is, it's a fascinating thing to kind of contemplate 
uh, the level of persecution. But more interestingly, why is nobody, why is the state not wanting to be held to account for it? And, you know, there should be that opportunity to bear witness. People should be asking for, and I'm sure they want forgiveness, people that were horribly homophobic and transphobic. They should be given the chance to say that they were, and that might help them. You know, going back to the idea that it was state policy for mothers to reject their sons, those mothers will want to say sorry, and they should be given the chance to do that in a... And the state should be there acknowledging its responsibility in it all. Can we talk about trans rights um, and how the courts got involved with trans rights? The, the, the first, some of the first really fun, you know, cases in the European Court of Human Rights. I mean, you know, kind of, when I say fun, I mean the cases that kind of were pushing the frontiers of, of the European Convention were brought by by trans people, and um, you know, Mark Rees brought one to uh, argue that he had the, should have the right to have his birth certificate amended. And then we had this whole episode that was dragged out for decades whereby the European Court of Human Rights acknowledged that it was a violation of trans people's identity not to allow them to have their birth certificates amended. But, of course, they created that probably relatively... Um, problematic concept of the margin of appreciation and they say well yes we accept that your rights are being violated but we think uh, the United Kingdom is about to change its policy and and therefore under the circumstances we won't find a violation because we're going to apply this margin of appreciation and allow the United Kingdom to bring their laws and compliance with human rights law is basically the argument that, that was adopted. I think I think the technical term is a cop out. Yeah, for, the, yeah. for, for that. that. This went on and on and on for um, for decades until the Goodwin case. You know, we had the Cossey case after the Reese case and Sheffield and Horsham. Uh, but you know, the margin just constantly being applied, and then finally, the European Court of Human Rights had had enough, and they said in, in the Goodwin case, this is a violation, and therefore, since then, you know, the the, the law had to had to change. And so, therefore, people's identity is reflected in their in their birth certificates, which is fantastic. And, but the, and, but the and real, other state documents and, and all, that, and all that, documents, all, 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 all state passports, but, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. everything. You know, and um, but the real the seminal moment really in uh, in trans cases was the case I think I've just already alluded to it a little bit when uh, when this trans woman was so badly treated by her employer that um, when she returned to work in her in her correct gender uh, that she brought a discrimination case against them and that case ended up at the European Court of Justice and she was able to establish it was she was being discriminated against on the grounds of her of her sex um, under the equal treatment directive and therefore under the sex discrimination act which gave effect to the equal treatment directive and that was a, that that was in the mid 90s and that was the case that changed everything um because that meant that trans people were protected on the grounds of sex discrimination laws across the board uh, i was involved in another case after that which then we were able to guarantee pension rights to a the partner of a of a or oh, the the trans man who was a uh, whose partner had a pension um, so you know, it 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 was a seminal, important cases, both of those. Yeah. One of the one of the key battlegrounds in terms of LGBT rights in the in recent years has been these cases that involve religious believers, and quite often they 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 tend to be Catholics um, for whatever reason. I think probably to do with who has the resources um, to bring cases, and there tends to be organisations. That are behind that are behind these cases, um, but that but those cases seem to be generally coming down on the side of LGBT people rather than the religious believers. Would you agree with that? Well, th- well, that's right, and it sort of explains neatly how the right to manifest your religion works. So the the manifest the right to manifest your religion works in this way that it's kind of it's a broad church. If that's not an inappropriate thing to say to the extent that 
most things that people consider to be their faith are included. But when it comes to manifesting your faith, if there are if there is some sort of compelling um, public interest reason or there is a good reason, it doesn't even have to be compelling, if there's a good reason to interfere with the manifestation of your religion or, religion or belief, then that is um, a justification for interfering with your religion and belief. And so therefore, LGBT equality is self-evidently uh, a good reason to interfere with religion and belief. So for example, the cases involving the registrars that didn't want to, or the registrar that didn't want to perform civil partnerships. Yeah, Liddell. Liddell, thank you. Um, That there are really strong public policy reasons for not allowing that to be the case. Um, I mean, on one level, you could argue how ghastly to be being civilly partnered by somebody who doesn't believe in the authenticity of your relationship. But more importantly, you know, registrars do all other kind of functions. I mean, the idea that I'd have to go to a registrar who could sort of say, oh, I don't particularly want to register the death of my partner, I I think that would just break my heart. But so, of course, they have to or or register your child. Um, from an LG, in an LGBT uh, relationship. So, of course, there are compelling public, or just good reasons why that registrars must be compelled to, um, to perform those services. Uh, but the, the more problematic case is the case of last year, uh, the Ashes case in, in Northern Ireland, involving a bakery that refused to bake um, a cake um, uh, calling for equal marriage. Yeah, with a picture of Bert and Ernie. With a picture of Bert and Ernie, that great, iconic gay couple. Um, Still uh, in the closet, though. They, 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 uh, well, that's life. That's life. Yeah. That's, you know, that's our world. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Um, but the um, uh, that is the the problematic case, and uh, I, you know, obviously, I am a disciple of of Saint Brenda Hale. But on that, on in this instance, she she did get it fantastically wrong. And even if she's correct on her application of of non discrimination law, uh, she is wrong in the way in which she approached it from a human rights point of view. Because of course, um, the the kind of public policy reasons for requiring the cake to be made uh, outweigh the arguments that that she prioritized in relation to the bakers not they shouldn't have to be compelled to do something they didn't want to yeah. do and, and this was a concept that, that, that the supreme court imported from the united states of compelled yeah. speech yeah and and actually the approach she should have been taking is the, the kind of classic um balancing act between religion and Privacy or religion and expression, i his the kind of or religion and LGBT identity, and the imp- the consequences of 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 saying you could um, uh, refuse to bake the cake have such significant implications for the LGBT community. Principally, it makes the high street an unsafe place. That actually you you have no idea, and I know that. You can clever discrimination lawyers can sort of work it out, but for the everyday LGBT person, you know, going about their daily business on the high street, once again, it's been affirmed that actually they can be denied um, goods and services, and arguments that somehow anyone who wanted the cake would have been um, denied the cake don't really add up when it actually was a gay man. In Northern Ireland, who's denied marriage? Who wanted the cake for that? For, because he's a gay man, denied marriage in Northern Ireland, and so they 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 she, it did fundamentally miss the point. So uh, it, it, it's going off to Strasbourg. Um, so I, I'd love to get involved in it if I could, and maybe you can help Adam. Yeah, I mean, I, what I didn't understand about that that case is how it how if the if the bakers baking the cake is them saying that they support gay marriage, how is Mrs. Liddell registering the um, the gay couple? Not, I don't know, being being registered as a gay couple, or you know, it, it seems that that separation between services and 
doing the thing. It, it seems to have disappeared. It's a very, I mean, and again, I don't want to be critical of Brenda Hale, uh, but, you know, it, it's a very, it's not a very, doesn't feel a well thought through case. It uh, doesn't feel well thought through. Can we finish by looking at the future? Um, and if you were to have a shopping list of what you think can still be achieved and still needs to be achieved. I know at, at number one is the some sort of public inquiry or truth and, reconcilia- truth and reconciliation process for what's happened previously and to try and get some sort of closure on that period of history. What, what else is needed in the law, not in the law, to um, reach full equality? Well, we were getting there with the EU Charter. So obviously we need to have the equivalent of the EU, if, assuming if it does happen that we leave the European Union, we need that equivalence in, in UK law. And I always thought it would have been very interesting if Theresa May had said, right, we're, we are getting rid of the EU Charter, but we're going to replace it with a freestanding right to equality in UK law, which included sexual orientation and gender identity. That really would have taken the wind out of the of the sails of the people that were campaigning to remain in the European Union, because we would have got we would have got something that was as good or better. Uh, but we but, definitely but, need but that. Would, but would you need that to have the power of the EU Charter to be able to disapply primary legislation? Well, we, that's, that's exactly that's no. We 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 well, that is a good point. We need we need that. Um, we need that sort of freestanding right to equality that applies across the board. Uh, I mean, the difficulty with the Equality Act, I mean, obviously, the Equality Act is excellent and is a very good thing, but it, you know, it is limited in its application to the, to the scope of the Equality Act. But they're, they're Which is ha- service providers yeah. um, and you know, government departments, yeah. Yeah. but it's not, and it might be some individuals and, you know, for example, barristers or employees, but it's not everybody and it's not every t- all the time. No, and therefore if you had a, a, a freestanding right to equality across the board, which included sexual orientation, that would make sure all of those gaps that we are, we anticipate would be would be filled. Uh, I mean, well, a, a freestanding right to equality that includes uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, we, uh, we need to clearly address that question about uh, the relationship between religion and faith and sexual orientation. Um, and it needs to be made clear that you can't use faith or expression in these circumstances to to disadvantage um, a group of people um, in this way, and LGBT people, obviously, in particular under these circumstances. Uh, the other big question is, of course, a foreign policy issue, which is the, the, the British need to get firmly behind ending LGBT persecution, not only because obviously it has an impact upon our own asylum laws or or, or, or asylum in the UK, because people can claim asylum here because they're persecuted elsewhere, but we just need to have a clear foreign foreign policy strategy that is about prioritising ending LGBT persecution globally. Um, And we haven't got uh, trans issues right and we need to really focus on that. Um, and we still, as we saw just a few months ago, we haven't got education right. And we need to sort of, that again also needs to be be prioritised. I mean, great groups like Stonewall are doing fantastic work on all of that, and the, and the government's trying. But those issues do need to be um, to be given full and proper attention. So it would be a freestanding right to equality, getting the rectifying the balance between uh, religious freedom and sort of anti-speech, um, dealing with foreign policy and uh, making sure that you get full equality for trans people and getting our education policies around LGBT right. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Adam. Thanks very much to Jonathan Cooper for an excellent, interesting and at times moving conversation about the history of LGBT rights in the UK and across Europe. All that's left for me to say is that the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And if you're interested in studying law, 
you can apply next year. You can learn more at gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you want to support the podcast, then please visit our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. And if you could just contribute $3 a month, that would be hugely appreciated and help us to sustain this podcast and make sure that we can continue to create interesting human rights podcasts um, on all different subjects under the sun. You can contact me, Adam, at betterhumanpodcast.com or find us on Twitter, B, that's the letter B, Human Podcast. Thanks very much to my editor, that's Sammy Brow, and my research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Ames. Thanks very much for listening. This has been the Better Human Podcast. I'm Adam Wagner. Goodbye.